0: Hi, this is Robert Wall, and you are listening to the one, the only, my longtime buddy, Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. Need I say more?
1: Need I say more? Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Padre. Our guest this week is a journalist, editor, screenwriter, best-selling author, songwriter, occasional actor, and as of April of this year, a recording artist. He's a former writer for Rolling Stone, as well as the editor-in-chief of the publications High Times and The National Lampoon. I think I've heard of that one. He's also the author or co-author of best-selling books about everyone from illusionist David Blaine to KISS drummer Peter Chris. And Red Hot Chili Peppers frontman, Anthony Kiedis. To heavyweight champ, Mike Tyson. To counterculture hero, Abby Hoffman. His 2006 biography of escape artist Harry Houdini called The Secret Life of Harry Houdini... It's soon to be a major motion picture, and of course, he co-authored two of Howard Stern's best-selling books, Private Parts and Miss America. Again, this all sounds vaguely familiar. I think I've, I think I've, I think I've heard the Howard Stern Show. <laughs> I'm sure? not. I'm Are you not sure? Positive. <laughs> I can't. It's so long ago. But there's, a, there's more. He also penned one of the most respected books on the subject of rock and roll. A first-hand account of his friend and musical hero, Bob Dylan's inf- infamous Rolling Thunder Review Tour, entitled On the Road with Bob Dylan. In a long, diverse, and fascinating career, he's worked with, hung out with, and befriended legendary characters such as Allen Ginsberg, Joan Baez, Kiki Friedman, John Cale, Lou Reed, Nick Cave, Tom Waits, Penn Jillette, Leonard Cohen, and even me! Gilbert Gottfried! Perhaps his greatest honor of all. Perhaps. His very first solo album recorded with the help of some famous friends is called Stubborn Heart. And he's featured prominently... In the brand new Martin Scorsese directed documentary, Rolling Thunder Review, A Bob Dylan Story. Please welcome to the podcast a dear old friend, a New York City icon, and an artist of many talents. A man who says he aspires to be the Jewish Susan Boyle. The one, the only, Larry Ratso Sloman.
2: Hi. Wow.
1: I'm
0: sorry, Larry. We don't have time to do the show now. Yeah, thanks for having (laughs) me. (laughs) It's a 47-minute intro. Wow. Welcome. The the only
1: thing missing is found dead in his New York (laughs) (laughs) apartment.
0: How long have you guys known each other? This is going to be a silly one, I can tell. How long have you guys known each other? And do you remember a meeting?
2: Ah, uh, Jesus! What did we, well, I, I yeah, I think I first met him in Carol. One of the old old Carolines. Uh, I was friends with Belzer. Oh wow! And, Should have put Belzer on that list of characters. <laughs> and uh, and w- w- it was before I was at Lampoon. I think I was at High Times.
1: I probably. Think. Uh, I think we met at the clubs, and then later on at Lampoon all the time. Oh well, Lampoon. Uh, but before we get into this sordid history, oh, I have.
2: Action a gift for Gilbert. How nice. And uh, it's a legendary Nike ripoff that says <laughs> Oy oh, <at> Vey.
0: <laughs> oh, classic, classic.
2: Now, this is a gift from... <laughs> it from, says Oy with it gets a Nike smoosh. It gets better. <laughs> I have another gift. Oh. This is a gift from David Mannheim, who has his own podcast called Dopey, but he's the last Jewish... Deli waiter in New York. He had a, another podcast like that. Wow. And um, I met him at Katz's because uh, I was there with my wife. And uh, he comes up to me Ratzo, says, Ratzo, I'm a big Stern fan. You Forget, to come sit at my table. So, sit at my table. So, you know, we're sitting there, we're ordering some stuff. And he's bringing on, you got to try this. You got to try this. You got to try this. I get the bill. He's charging me for all
1: this oh, stuff. Oh, jeez. Now,
2: now, I happen to be married to a shiksa, but we've been married for 20 years, and she's learned something. She goes to him, this should be comped. <laughs> he goes, what? <laughs> anyway, he, he comped it. And, uh, um, and so I just did his podcast last week, and I told him I was going to do this podcast, and he says, he told me a story about Gilbert. He says, Gilbert was... I guess it was uh, the 125th anniversary of Katz's or something, and they hired you to do something.
1: Katz's Deli? Oh, yeah. Right.
2: Uh-huh. And part of what they paid Gilbert was they gave him a, a card that said, half price off for life. Then he says that Gilbert Gilbert was in a lot. Oh, he yeah, abused I, the card. But yeah. then, <laughs> no, but then there was a new uh, girl at the cash register, and Gilbert came in. And he gave her the card, and she looked, and she says, What is this? I have no idea what this is. I can't give this. Gilbert starts arguing with her. And <laughs>
3: Gilbert leaves.
2: Anyway, you'll be happy to know that your half-off card is now valid again. Anytime you want to go to Kansas, oh, half-off oh, yeah, goes. Nice. So. What a
0: nice gift. You love guests that come bearing gifts. Yeah. <laughs> So you pulled some strings, and now he can eat at Katz's Deli for half half price. off. That's right. Wow.
1: What do you think, Gil? Well, f- yeah, f- free would be better. But. Well, yeah. I mean, they never honored it in the first place. <laughs> that was the thing. <laughs> They were very generous, giving me a little shit piece of plastic, as long as they don't have to honor it. They, wait, they never honored it from no, the beginning. Really? Oh, no, wow. I went in there twice, and it was like <laughs> the full price both times.
2: Wow! Well, it's, you're going to get half price now, directly yeah. from. And his he's one of he's Mishbuka. so he's his uncle is the owner of Katz's, so you're getting the
1: half price. How about that? He looks skeptical. (laughs) Yadj. I like the hat better.
0: (laughs) Are you 29% Italian?
2: Did I read that right? Actually, I'm I'm more than 20. More than? I just did. More than? That's
0: what I wrote down in an interview. I just
2: did
1: my 23andMe. But but you you look and act like a total (laughs) kike. Well...
2: (laughs) I think. see, I, I was under the impression that i uh, I was an Ashkenazi jew. okay. i was I was adopted. And, you know, it was all it was a thing that was prearranged by some Fagazi Jewish lawyer. okay, and uh, my parents uh, uh, picked me up at, at I was born in Bellevue. My parents, apparently my biological mother came from Pennsylvania to Bellevue to give birth to me. The next day, My adoptive parents came and took me to Queens. Anyway, so. uh, You're not entirely sure. So I didn't know. Okay. No, no. I just thought I was, because they were all Ashkenazi. Gotcha. I did my 23andMe, and I said, half Italian, half Balkans. Now I'm going crazy. Maybe I'm not Jewish. So I Googled. Jews in the Balkans. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> and apparently, there were so many Jews at one point in the Balkans after World War One. They were thinking of putting Israel in the Balkans. Uh, and, and, and what? 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 Obviously, I think what I am now is that um, there were Spanish Jews, of course, who left because of the Inquisition. Okay. They migrated to Italy, and then on. And and I I actually to verify this, I did the other one. Ancestry,
0: ancestry. Yeah, that's the one and, I did.
2: Yeah, and uh, found out not only is it the Balkans, but it's Romania. I love this, Gilbert. So, have you done this? Have you had any interest in doing your ancestry?
1: I think I think uh, it was done. And who? Oh, Were you? One of your, <laughs> your siblings did it? Yeah, and and you I think. think uh, well, I knew my mother. My mother's side was from Russia, right? And I always had heard my father's side was Poland. They said Austria Hungary, but I heard like all the borders change over the years. So uh What are you gonna do if it turns out you have like two percent Italian blood? Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you gonna kill yourself?
1: Um, yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> But I can't believe you have anything other than Jew in you. Well, I think think take off Sephardic. I ever met in my (laughs) life. I'm Sephardic (laughs) Jewish. And he
0: knew Goldstein. Yeah. 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 Did you do an Elvis impersonation at your bar mitzvah,
2: by the way? Okay. This I have to hear about. Okay, so... um, (laughs) That's where it started. (laughs) Yeah, it actually... No, my singing career actually started when I was about six or seven years old in my parents' living room in Kew Gardens because I was a big Elvis fan. And so I used to do an imitation of Elvis in my underwear holding a broomstick... And they'd bring the neighbors in, and I would entertain the neighbors <laughs> singing Love this was me a tender. This was a big show, right in the hood. So then, uh, thirteen years old, now I got to be Bob Mitzford, and I was kicked out of two Hebrew schools from like doing you know, spitballs at the rabbi and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my parents then had to uh, rent a rabbi to teach me my Torah, and they all, I also got a, a, a an LP that you put it on, and you just memorized your Torah. All right, so um, by that time, the only place that would take us was Jamaica, a shul that was attached to the Jamaica YMHA. (laughs) Uh, It's an orthodox shul. We lived in Kew Gardens. You're not supposed to drive on your (laughs) (laughs) shots. So we drove and we parked like 20 blocks away and we walked the rest of the way. And I'm sitting on, up on there on the stage getting ready to do my Haftorah a little nervous and the rabbi leans over and goes So you drove here today And I go hmm and hmm oh, And, oh. <laughs> and uh, so then I went up did my Haftorah and I imitated elephants doing the Haftorah and I swear when the, the part, afterwards, when you walk around with the Torah, the old men were weeping, they were going to kiss the Torah. They, were, they actually asked me if I wanted to be a cantor. Wow,
0: so that's an honor. You're sitting next to a man who didn't uh, have a transfer yeah.
1: what? I'm, I'm a horrible Jew) <laughs> We know that. Yeah, yeah, everyone knows that. But the reasons are so varied when you really get to know me. We've done like 266 of these shows, and I'm
0: trying to. We've we've asked so many guests about their bar mitzvahs. We just, yes. had, we just had the the but, director,
2: James Burroughs. He then. has bum hits for Envy. Yeah. Of, absolutely. <laughs> but you know, it's never too late. You could have a bum mitz in
1: Well, I, I was saying like Kirk Douglas. He was like <laughs> <Yeah>. 90 <laughs> yeah. something. Yeah. He had a second, second bar one.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: It's not too late to get circumcised
2: either. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what did you what else did you listen to as a kid other than Elvis? I
2: found this. In well, my... can
1: you say can you do your yeah. Elvis impression? Bit bit
2: oh God. I can't even know if I can do it now. <clears throat> love me tender, love me true, never let me go.
0: And you do <laughs> this at the bar mitzvah.
2: This is well, what I the old
1: Jews' web. <laughs> <it>, um,
2: <laughs>
1: now, do you believe there's any truth at all to the to the theory that, that Elvis was part Jewish? Well, it's interesting. Yeah,
2: I do think there's truth to that. I mean... um, His brother, he had an identical twin brother who died. His name was Aaron. Apparently, Gladys supposedly had some uh, Jewish blood in there. So, Elvis, if 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 the Jewish blood came through his mother, then he definitely was part Jewish. So,
1: Elvis was a Jew? In part. Possibly. Doesn't get any better than that. Uh
0: What well. else did you listen to? I found this is fascinating. You, you, Gogi Grant's "The Wayward Wind" was a song that had a that, that had, me, had a, meaning for you yeah, as a kid.
1: And, Remember that song, Bill? Do you know the Wayward Wind? Well, can you sing it?
0: But he's making you, he's making yeah. you sing, Ratsy.
2: Yeah. The wayward wind is a restless <laughs> wind. wind, a restless wind that yearns to wander, and he was born the next of kin, the next of kin, to the wayward wind. Oh, it was yes. a beautiful song. It is a beautiful song. You know, it was about railroad tracks. I happened to live overlooking the Long Island Railroad uh, in Kew Gardens, mm-hmm. so the, the song resonated with me. It, 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 it was one of the... You know how when you listen to music and... For some reason, you just get this chills. Something just touches you. Yeah. Gogi Grant's voice and that. And that Still song. today? When you oh, hear yeah. that song? Oh, absolutely.
0: We talk a lot about, we've had a fair amount of musicians. Jimmy Webb was here. Tommy James was here. Peter Asher. Oh,
1: Paul Williams. Paul Williams
0: was here. We talk about uh, how songs bring you back, snap you back to a, to a memory, to a place, right. very specifics. Right. Uh, very specific. What you were eating, where you were, sometimes
2: even a smell. Does that happen? To you, no. Okay. <laughs> no. I, Back yeah, to Jewish Elvis. Of course they do. I mean, you know, the the songs, uh, you know, have an emotional re- uh, resonance. So yeah, I mean, you know, I'll never forget. Uh, we could probably talk about uh, the first time I heard Dylan. Yeah. Which was, uh, um, 1965. You know, so I didn't come from a, a red diaper family. My. My parents weren't you know radical leftists and you know organizing sweatshops or anything like that. My father actually owned a business in the garment center, and my mother was a bookkeeper. I
0: like how you said, your father was always waiting for the Nazis to come back he was he was always lived in fear of that
2: well he was yeah and you know when I think about it now, it wasn't that many years, yeah, so uh you know it was uh when I started rebelling and like hanging out in East Village with Abby Hoffman and people like that, uh, you know, my father would always say, "You're going to those anti-war marches. You're going to get arrested and ruin your life." That was his mantra.
0: You yeah, know? so he's a good dad, looking out for you. Yeah.
1: And tell us how you got the nickname Ratso. Well,
2: that was uh, uh, years later on the Rolling Thunder Review. Um, I was, you know, I was covering the review for Rolling Stone, and, you know, you get on the road, and first of all, the only thing in the review was two big buses, one full of the entertainers, one full of the crew, and Bob Dylan ri- driving a little um, executive, uh, you know, what do they call those things, RVs, a mm-hmm. small RV mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I had to follow these things. I had to drive my own rental car. You know, you don't sleep that well on the road. You start taking stimulants to be able to stay up. And, you you might miss a shower or two. So uh, I drove up to the – it it was in um, – I think it was in Vermont. And I drove up to where the uh, hotel where everybody was staying. It was a beautiful Indian summer day. Uh, People were outside playing volleyball. And Joan Baez comes up to the uh, car and she looks in the car and she goes, hey, it's Ratso. So I said, oh, you call me Ratso because I remind you of Dustin Hoffman? And she leans in the car. She grabs my stringy, dirty hair and she goes, no, you remind me of Ratso. And that's how I got that. And and when she called me Ratso, I embraced that. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, first of all, it was very distinctive. Second of all, you know, um, when I started writing the book, the book was in the first person until she calls me Ratso, and then the book shifts into third person. It's interesting. And Ratso becomes another character in the book. It's sort of how Reg Dwight
0: becomes Elton John and is a completely different person. Yeah, he's acting out all the things well, he
2: couldn't be in his childhood through through that persona. And was a little bit of that to this day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Ratso. You know, I mean. Uh, uh, could get away with anything. He wears the most outlandish clothing, although, you know, uh, most of my clothing is from Soul trend fashion in New Orleans. <laughs> I get these incredible, like, you know, um, uh, suits from uh, Superfly, uh, you know, kind of, you know, lavender suits, purple suits. I mean, just crazy This stuff. is what you need, Gil. You need an alter ego.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but go ahead. I thought oh, he had it all. I yeah. thought Gilbert was his. Who
1: was that country western singer who had the old? Oh, it was Garth Brooks? Oh, yeah. Was, for, was somebody else oh, right, for a while? That's right. Yeah,
0: I can't remember the name the, 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 the name he sang under. But 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 talk about the Dylan uh, record that you so you went into the record store.
2: So the I, thing that changed first, your life. I, I, I was walking up Bell Boulevard in Bayside, and I, I passed a record store, and you know they had a listing. On, in the window of the top 10 singles. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking up and I saw a thing called Like a Rolling Stone, B. Dillon. First of all, at that time, growing up, you were either a Beatles fan or you were a Rolling Stones fan. I was a big Rolling Stones fan because, you know, they were the guys who were like, you know, getting busted for drugs and then pissing on the courthouse outside. Uh, the Beatles were much too conventional for me. So I look at this and I said, like a Rolling Stone B. Dillon. Who's this B. Dillon guy ripping off the Rolling Stones? So I went in and I bought the single and I went home and it just changed my life. Listening to that, I mean, the music was majestic. That organ, uh, Al Cooper, Mike Bloomfield's guitar, and then the words, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and uh, I, I was so excited that I made my father, I had my driver's uh, permit, but it was nighttime, so I couldn't use it at night. So I made my father drive me to Flushing, to Corvettes, to buy the album Highway 61, which was on sale for eighty eight. and uh, I went home and I put it on, and it was just one after another. Palette of a thin man and, you know, uh, um, tessellation road mm-hmm. At midnight, all the agents in the superhuman crew come out and round up everyone who knows more when they, they, than they do. And they strap him to the heart attack machine. It was like, holy shit. There was you a were whole, transformed. There was a whole other way to look at the world.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. That's I know that record store, too. Because oh, I, yeah. I told you in the email, I grew up in Ozone Park. Oh, and right. I, knew that, I knew that record store in Corvette's. Right. Everything
2: changed when you heard that song. Yeah, my whole life changed, without a doubt.
0: Gilbert, do you remember, like, sort of the first rock and roll record you bought, or or listened to,
1: or cared about? Oh, you know, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I do remember having the LP Frank Fontaine's Songs I Sing on the <laughs> Crazy <Texas>. Guggenheim. <laughs> yes, that counts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, well,
2: what what, actually, a formative song in my upbringing was my parents had a song by Leo Tully called Essen. And the song was all about when you go to the Catskills on vacation. Okay. And um, so first it says, you know, so we're going to the schools, And you want to play volleyball? No. You want to play, uh, you want to go swimming? No. You want to play tennis? No. You sit in the chair and maracas. And mabakasha. and then ladies and gentlemen and guests of the Feitelbaum Hotel, <laughs> lunch is being served. Essen, McGee and Essen, they go to the whole... <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> uh, 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 <coughs> loved that song, at Paul Schaefer. And I remember we were at Caroline's one night, and Paul Schaefer said to me, you got to meet the bartender. I said, why? He says, it's Lee Tully's son.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah. What was that Jewish song that, that Dara played? The
1: one, the, oh, the, the one, oh, Rassel must know it. Oh, okay. That was the one... um. Oh, you had you gotta have a little muzzle. You gotta have a little because muscle, muzzle means good luck. Does that and mean if you, you have had muzzle, you'll always have a buck. <laughs> Did you ever listen to the songs of Mickey Cats? Of course. We had Joel Gray
0: here, really? Mickey Cats' Mickey wow. son. Yeah, Gilbert how loves much how much is the pickle, is that pickle
1: in the window. Girl, I'm listening to
0: that stuff too. And Alan Sherman. Oh, of yeah. course. Your, your now, folks had comedy albums in the house, too? importantly,
1: yes. uh, what has... Uh, did Bob Dylan ever talk about me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually...
2: <laughs> yeah, I do have a story about that. Ah. I don't know if you remember this, but um, Bob Dylan at one point was... They gave him a record label. I think it was called Egyptian Records. And he was looking for artists to put on the label. And I went to Caroline's, and I taped Gilbert's show. Wow. And I gave it to Dylan's manager, and I said, they should put out a a note, because Gilbert had no records out at that point. And I gave it to the manager, and I never heard that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not a big fan of Norman Fell jokes? Dylan's manager?
1: I <laughs> <No. laughs> Does that count, but, Gil? But he never... Didn't he have a bunch of those things that he would start and then just... Uh, Bob? Yeah. Hell, just, yeah. Then just give up. Yeah. He'd like ha- be enthusiastic for a day Yeah. and then uh, forget about it.
2: Yeah, one time he uh, I had a meeting with him at the uh, Gramercy Park Hotel. And uh, we were in the bar... And he said, uh, you know, I'm thinking about starting a, rec- uh, a movie company. I said, really? Uh, how, how, how would it work? He says, well, you know, uh, you have a lot of friends, right, who are writers, and they can't sleep. I said, maybe some of them. <laughs> he says, well, take a guy like Phil Oaks so we can get one of your writer friends to write a script about Phil Oaks, all right, and then we'll go to the studios and we'll get a budget and then we'll bring it in under budget, and we'll keep the rest. <laughs> that was the, this idea of starting a, a film studio.
1: And someone we had it was a brilliant, guest. brilliant idea. We had a guest on the podcast. I forget who it was. What they say? Who told us that at one point one of Dylan's ideas that he was enthusiastic for a tiny amount of time. Was that he would be the next Jerry? Oh, Lewis. Oh, it was Larry
0: Charles. Yeah, yeah. They made Maston anonymous. Bob series. Dylan yeah.
1: wanted was watching Jerry Lewis movies and thinking he wants to be wow. the next. Well, well he Jerry and Larry Lewis.
0: went in on a. They went to a studio meeting, and they pitched some sort of feature to star Bob.
2: You know this? Yeah, but wasn't that the feature that they eventually made? The I, I, anonymous?
0: Somehow, I think, I think so. it, it 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 was filtered down. Right. To becoming Mass and anonymous, but right. but I think what they originally went in there with was a broad comedy. Yeah,
2: set in a uh, concentration camp.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what about this thing? Uh, and this has Gilbert relevance. You sampled Bela Lugosi, yes. in one of the songs on the new album. Yes, and it's Gilbert's favorite bit—the bit from Dracula. What music they make?
2: Children oh, yes,
1: Children of the Night. Listen to them. <laughs> Children of the night, what music they make! <laughs> right, and that's the
2: uh, intro to a song called "Living in Moonlight."
0: Yes, was it? Was Dracula? Were you a horror film guy like him? Oh,
2: of course! Are you kidding? I yeah. mean, I, I yeah. I mean, I had a my grandfather used to babysit for me, and he was very cool. Um, he was uh, from uh, Kiev, I think, and uh, he used to uh, we used to either watch horror films on W.O.R., w- I think, or we would watch wrestling. And we, and I would be wrestling with him while we were watching the show. My grandfather
0: thought wrestling was real, too. Yeah. Professional <laughs> wrestling. You watch Chiller Theater and... Uh, oh, Zachary, exactly, uh, of course. Yeah, Creature Creature Features. Zachary, exactly.
4: There's, a, yes, there's a, yes. There's a good
0: reference. We of tried course. to get him on this show. He was in bad shape. Yeah.
1: Now, weren't you, like... Weren't you? Wasn't, wasn't your job, like... Either handing out or investigating welfare checks. didn't you have some strange job you used to go to people's homes? No, I used to maybe you,
2: you I think you're confounding that with when I graduated um, Queen's College. okay, so you know, I made a pact with my parents. I'd get good grades, mm-hmm. and you'd leave me alone. Let me grow my hair long. Let me go hang out in East Village with Abby Hoffman. So um, I graduated, uh, 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 magna cum laude, um, uh, Phi Beta Kappa. My father was so proud; he put big uh, posters up in the build, uh, apartment building. That's by then, cool. We we're in Bayside by then, and uh, and and uh, you know, I was able to uh, to uh, you know pursue my other things. But then, at the, when I graduated Queens College, I graduated a degree in sociology, uh, it still was iffy. This was the last vestiges of the draft and the Vietnam War. I had a very high number, but I didn't want to chance it. So, I joined VISTA, and uh, VISTA is the Domestic Peace Corps. And So, they put us in an experimental program in Milwaukee. Now, the people in Washington had no idea what these people in Milwaukee were doing. They thought we were working um, during the day in the, in the, uh, in the ghetto there uh, as a paralegal, paraprofessional with uh, you know, kids in school. At night, we would organize welfare mothers. For Father Grappi, who was this radical priest? So <laughs> you were close, Gil, right? Yeah. So, so, uh, so what? Radical I would, priest. So, so, yeah. So, what? You know, they they gave us an orientation. They said, "All right, before we're going to put you out in the field." And we, we all lived in one big building in the, you know on Palmer Street, uh, right in the middle of the ghetto. And they said before we put you out in the field, we, you have to get into the aspirations of the black community. You have to get into you know the the goals and what they hope for and everything. So the first thing I did was I I bought a, a Lincoln Continental, a used Lincoln Continental, maroon Lincoln Continental with the suicide doors, and that's what I used to pick up. The mothers to bring him to the de- demonstrations and everything. So
1: it was. a How a the great hell do him. you know that about him? Yes, yeah. I don't I'm, know how. You, <laughs> and didn't you, didn't you say you used to get laid, yes. doing that job? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well,
2: <laughs> and, and again, this is uh, okay. Now this is thanks to Al Goldstein.
0: Uh, you know, so this is what you told me in the email. So, gro- yeah. yeah. So
2: growing up in Queens at that point. <clears throat> You know, unless you were to get engaged to a Jewish girl, no Jewish girls, you'd be lucky if you get a blowjob, but no Jewish girls would sleep to you, with you then. <laughs> so um, I went to, to, to Vista, and uh, we were living next door to a, a, a house full of uh, very nice young black girls, and they invited all the white Vista volunteers for a party. And uh, I remember uh, going to the party and hanging out for a little while, and then we went, Um, I went back to my place and then this girl named Alice came back, knocked on the door and she says, come back to the party. I said, okay. So, just in the time it took to walk right next door, she said, I hope you don't think I'm too forward but would you like to sleep with me tonight? And I went, huh? (laughs) And I said, yeah. So, so I, uh, uh, so we went back my place and now here was a a chance for me finally i i I wasn't a virgin but you know i had didn't have much experience but here was a chance for me to use the education i learned by watching midnight blue (laughs) because uh, al Al would be so proud that's right (laughs) i told him ron jeremy was on once Uh, and i remember watching ron Jeremy was telling al the best ways to do cunnilingus. You basically use your tongue and you you trace out the alphabet on the clitoris. So, and, and don't forget, this is 1970, so at that point, Italians, Italian men, and black men would not do cunnilingus on a woman. They thought they were too macho to do that. But here's a sloppy little joke. So, I get the girl in bed and I'm doing that to her and all I know is she moves into my room. She wouldn't leave. <laughs> she wouldn't let me leave. So after like about two weeks of this, I'm saying, oh my God, can we like go shopping? Can we do something? And it
0: was... <laughs> Just want to get out of the house. Yeah, but
2: it was, uh, it was definitely an exper- a cultural
1: experience. I like the parts this. of your
0: life that Gilbert remembers. Yeah. yeah that's Very yeah. interesting. i <laughs> say...
1: Yeah, this one she she looked like Oprah Winfrey. It was fantastic. Oh man! And then there was this other girl. She looked like Star Jones. It was fantastic. <laughs>
0: They're laughing in the booth. Uh,
1: she looked like Delores. Reese. <laughs> Della Reese. But, oh, now you've gone too but, far. Uh, <laughs> but really, an obese Della Reese. <laughs> and she had teeth missing. It was fantastic. Wow!
2: You know, you know Gilbert's invitation of me.
1: Uh,
2: <laughs> First time I've heard it. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, there's a clip on YouTube where. Um, Howard said it was the funniest bit he's ever heard on the show. Uh, he said it in the middle of the bit mm-hmm. because uh, um, I was talking about my house in Long Island because it was right by the water. You had to use marine toilet paper. So somehow that morphed into you can't use toilet paper or you can't put it down in the toilet at all. You have to put it in a little waste bag. <laughs> <pit. laughs> and then Gilbert starts riffing on, yeah, on me. Yeah.
1: You sit. You can make a game out of it. While while you taking this shit, you, you wipe your ass and see if you could score a biscuit. It's- and wow, what, you come you coming over the house later? Oh, you didn't eat at McDonald's, Stitcher because <laughs> My toilet can't handle that. Are you bringing back bits
0: from the store yeah,
1: Okay.
3: <laughs> just checking.
0: <laughs> Tell us, while, while we're on the subject of... of, uh,
1: the, of- Olsen <laughs> the Olsen twins. The Olsen clo- twins even clogged up my toilet. And they never eat. They're both starving to death, and they clogged my toilet. Wow. <laughs> <Wait a minute.
2: laughs> Gilbert, uh. you, you had me sing before. <laughs> I, I just want to request one thing, because I haven't heard this for so many years. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Request. When you were on Stern, you used to do Rabbi Gilbert Gosh. <laughs>
1: Bi khada ya khichade markna jere Are you you warmed up now, (laughs) Russ?
0: Oh, man. Talk about working with him at the Lampoon. And doing photo well, funnies. Because he had a flashback. Last week, we walked through past the old building on Spring Street.
2: Right. Remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: he had a flashback what? to doing, to the topless ladies.
2: Yeah. Well, um, in some ways, I'm responsible for uh, Gilbert's uh, literary career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was there one? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, because, um, you know, when I took over at Lampoon, one of the things I wanted to bring this was fresh blood. And... Um, I figured what's the best way to get Gilbert because, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> all kidding aside, I, you know, I think Gilbert is far and away one of the greatest comedians of our era. So um, I wanted to get Gilbert to contribute and I said, hmm, photo funnies. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <Yes>. Because, <laughs> you, know,
2: you. Know, you know, Gilbert was uh, – uh, this is before he met Dara and, and Gilbert, you know, was uh, – wasn't batting, you know, 600 or
3: 500 or 300 or whatever. He was I
1: batting. was known as the king of cunt. Yeah. Uh, so
2: I figured if I write these photo scripts where Gilbert uh, and the greatest one I think was where you played Christ on the cross. Yeah. I know, I have that issue. Yep. But, but we'd always get a, to- a topless girl in it, and then Gilbert would, first of all, he'd come an hour early.
3: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of course.
2: <laughs> he'd hang around. He'd hit on my secretary for half an hour.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, uh,
0: leave with a bunch of free issues. Uh, oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, Had to do that.
1: And And I remember, like... I used to write them like crazy because, you know, I thought uh, it was. It was like you spend the day with a bunch of naked girls. I keep adding instead of two girls, it was three and then four. And the the managers the pub, <laughs> were complaining. They're saying, wait, wait, wait a second. This is like the same exact thing. <laughs> that he wrote in last month's (laughs) issue... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Except he made it for girls. That's true. <laughs> and and you, because you always came along on those photo <laughs> funnies, you would you would defend me right. and say, No, no, it's totally different. No, no, I read it. It's really different.
0: That's a good friend. Setting you up like that, trying to get you laid.
1: And then I remember well, too, there was one. They were preparing an issue, and they said, we need, like, one extra part to fill up the issue, and they, uh I think they said to you, "Do you, well, do you think Gilbert could do another photo? Now, could he? Because I used to do these lists. All right. Pieces. That's the other thing. Guys. Oh, yes. Like, I did a hundred things to say when you can't achieve an erection, was one of them. <laughs> Right. And... And they said, do you think Gilbert can write a list piece? And do you remember what you said? Yeah. They they said, do you think Gilbert could write a list piece? And you said, are you kidding? He's a master of the genre. (laughs) (laughs) That
2: is a good friend. But it was true.
1: (laughs) It was true. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast right after this. That's what you say.
3: <laughs> because I'm easy. Hi, I'm Keith Carradine. Yeah, I'm easy. You're listening to
1: Gilbert Gottfried's podcast.
3: Take my hand and pull me down. It's the best. I won't put up any fight because I'm easy. Boom. It's Gilbert and Frank.
0: You were the last editor under Matty Simmons. Well, at the, Don't say I, under Matty. Oh, well, 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 when the magazine was owned by Matty Simmons, <laughs> yes, and then yeah. Matty
2: took a, a Parish Golden parachute and right. left us there with uh, Jim Jamero. J two, boy, that J2. was that was the death knell. Yeah, they yeah. thought they thought Lampoon Yuma would be Tim Conway. <laughs> Dorf well, there was, the, there was the Dorf guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what they thought. They wanted yeah. to do cruise ships with the
1: Lampoon. <laughs> and and I ahead, remember go. up at Lampoon is where I I first met uh, Drew Friedman. Probably. Yes. Probably, sure. Yeah. And, and he I, he used to do the drawings and to shade it. Right. He would have millions <laughs> of dots. So I followed him. Or I would Stipple. follow him around Stipple. the office <laughs> right. when, and I'd scream at him, Hey Jude. <laughs> yeah, Still, little, come on. Make some Jude. Make a little Jude. Still calls it up. Are you
0: listening, <laughs> Drew? That's for you. You, you well, also I, published the Friedman I, Brothers in High
2: Times. High Times, yeah, right?
0: Yeah. I, won, yeah. I won it the first time Yeah, Fred's, Fred Fred Mertz's night out yeah. and the Andy and the Andy Griffith show yep. sketch, great stuff. We
2: had a uh, Gilbert and I had a lot of fun when um Every year we would go to uh, the uh, f- a f- a comedy festival in Montreal, called mm-hmm. Jesporia. and I remember one year Gilbert was performing up there, and uh, we had a car that we'd rented, and I was with Andy Simmons, who was Matty's son, who was yeah, one of the editors, and um, and Gilbert we're driving around, and Gilbert goes, <laughs> he goes. Drive where the girls are. So, uh, you know, I I started driving around, uh, you know, where all the strip clubs are. (laughs) And Gilbert rolled down the window. He was sitting in the back. And we'd we'd, we'd see a girl and we'd slow down and Gilbert would stick his head out. Pardon me. Are you a hooker? (laughs) <laughs> and, then, and then we did
3: that back in New God. York. My friend Jack. Yeah. We oh, wow. had a big
1: Cadillac. <laughs> and we were with Simmons in the car. And, and he was like, shut up. Yeah, he Just was, shut up. He close was freaking close out. the window. <laughs> shut up.
0: Maddie or Andy? Andy. Andy. Poor Andy. <laughs> Poor
1: Andy. And, and so I just kept getting louder and louder <laughs> whenever there was <laughs> a course. hooker there. I would go, pop me! <laughs> ah, you are a hooker! And, and I, yeah, in New York, there was that one block. It was a block from my house, funny. Right. You know, back when New York would still have those blocks. Right. That was just the ugliest, scariest hookers. Yeah,
2: streetwalkers, yeah.
1: And it would take like an <laughs> hour to get from one end to the other because all the cars would, yeah. would be in line. Oh, so <laughs> the good old days. So Jack had a Cadillac
2: and Jack would be driving and I'd be in the front and Gilbert would be back and we'd do the same thing just as we were going down that street.
0: I'm going to hate myself for asking this, but on the subject of Dylan and Gilbert, do you, you think he's at all possibly aware of Gilbert's impression and Gilbert's Dylan bits? I don't know. You never uh, met him, right, Gil? No. So you never got any confirmation on yeah. that. You know the bit I'm talking about, where he does Floyd the Barber. Oh yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And and I, who was driving the car when we were going down that block with the hookers, Jack, my yeah, friend yeah. Jack. He was, he was freaking out totally. Oh no, no, he
2: he was freaking out because. A car in front of us got pulled over by undercover yes, cops. Yes, yes,
1: there and were then cops. Jack was we're getting
2: out of here, boom. And he just, <laughs> just was sped down the street, almost hit people. And
1: then I would start yelling shit out, and he was going. His voice kept getting higher and higher, and he was like, shut up. Shut up! <laughs> Shut the fuck up! We're gonna get arrested. The police are in. Shut up!
0: <laughs> Do you want to remind Ratso of the Dylan, uh, the Dylan Floyd the barber bit? In case oh, he's I, forgotten.
2: I, I, no,
1: I remember. You know the yeah. bit?
0: Yeah, yeah. But I'd uh, okay. like to hear
1: it. You Floyd. Uh, hello, Vav. How are you, <laughs> Flood? Still good? I'm, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> if, uh, would you, would you trim the sabers, Flood? Oh, I, it's for you. I would be a, it would be an honor. <laughs> fine. Uh, how much do I who are you, Flood? <laughs> It's, it's on the house. <laughs> <laughs> how do we
0: make sure Bob Dylan knows about this, Ratso? Um, uh, do
2: we have a tape of it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think your guy just recorded it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, R- uh, Ratso has a, his own go. documentary crew that he brought with That's him right. to the recording. Tell us about going pro for the first time. Tell us about the story in Milwaukee and how you wound up becoming a writer for Rolling Stone.
2: Because oh. your life was not necessarily headed in that direction. At, no. At the time. So, so what happened was after, um, you know, I, I was in Vista for a year. In fact, during the year, I had to come back to do a physical. And I found out that I didn't even have to go to Vista because, I, uh, you know, and everybody at that time was saying, how do I get out of the physical? Oh, I, I'll just say I'm gay. Oh, I'm going to rub some peanut butter on my ass and, I, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll start licking it. Yeah. And they will say I'm crazy. Right? So... So, I didn't do any. I was too nerdy to do something like that. But I got to the point where they'd say, take your glasses off. And they measured my glasses and they said, 4F. <laughs> I was that so, was it. I was wow. squ- so myopic. Good I, for you. Yeah, so I got out. So, uh, so when I was finished with the year in Vista, I still had no idea what I was going to do. And um, I had gotten, when I graduated, I had gotten an office, scholarship office from uh, the p- three places I applied to, which was Michigan. Brown and Wisconsin. The year later, I got a letter from Wisconsin saying, "Well, your year is up. Do you want to come now?" And it was a great deal. I mean, they paid all my tuition. It was a four-year program in sociology. They paid all my tuition. They paid me five hundred dollars a month living expenses. Mm-hmm. So I said, "I don't know what I was going to do." I went to uh, you know uh, Madison, and I tell you, it was culture shock because um, you know we thought. Well, New York's the epicenter of the world, the epicenter of the protest movements, blah, blah, blah. So um, I got a a house uh, with a bunch of roommates. My first night uh, in Madison, I'm about to go to graduate school the next day. I hear a big bang, and I thought it was a car backfiring or something. I wake up in the morning. The Army Maths Research Center had been blown up. Wow! By one of the radicals. <laughs> by radicals in yeah. Madison. Wow! Amazing. Wow! Wow! So, uh, so uh, the first thing I did was I went to um, the Daily Cardinal, which was the Madison uh, student newspaper. I walked in, I said, uh, "I'm about to start graduate school in sociology, but um, uh, you know, I've written for underground papers in New York. I'd like to be the music editor." And they said, "Okay." And the reason I wanted to be music editor was immediately I wrote letters to all the record companies. You wanted free records? Free records? Good move. Yeah, that's a Gilbert move. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Slick. So, um, so then uh, there was a, a concert in the summer called Summerfest in Milwaukee, and uh, you know because I had spent a year living in the black area in Milwaukee, I was hip to all the really cool black music. And Sly and the Family Stone, yeah. one of my favorites. Yeah, mine too. They, they, they were headlining this festival. So I said, all right, I'm going to go to the festival. I go to the festival. And again, this is when Sly is so fucked up on, on co- cocaine and freebase. He's an hour and a half late. He comes on stage. He does two numbers. He walks off stage. So you figure, you know, so people are going to boo whatever. Not in Milwaukee, not in the Midwest. They tore down the stage. They tore down the fence. They <laughs> burnt the stage. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow, wow. So I I, I, uh, I call up Rolling Stone and I said, <clears throat> this is uh, Larry Sloman. I'm the music editor of the Daily Cardinal of Madison. And uh, Sly Stone was performing at Summerfest and there was an altercation and there was, uh, should I write a story about it? And he said, yeah, do it on spec, which meant Sure. We don't give it. If you don't <laughs> like it, you're not getting paid. Right. But I was so proud. Hey, I had an assignment, and I, I, so I go, I go to interview the PR person, this woman, and I had a big Sony tape recorder that I actually would plug into the wall. Um, and she's not answering any of my questions. I forgot what the details I, I, I needed from her, but she's not answering anything. So I said, "All right, thanks." I pulled out the plug not knowing I left the recorder recording and that there were batteries in it. This was a complete mistake. I just pull out the, clo- the, the plug, and she goes, oh, great, now I'll tell you everything. And <laughs> it's still running. <laughs> yeah, it was wow. still running. So wow. so that was my first piece for Rolling Stone. Wow. And I had some great uh, assignments. Um, I did a preview of uh, Lou Reed's Berlin, mm-hmm. which was a lot of fun. I got to... Uh, uh, come on the second tour uh, second leg of the tour of George Harrison Ben Fong Torres had the first leg and for some reason Rolling Stone wanted to attack him because he wasn't doing Beatles songs he was doing all his you know, Mishigas with Ravi Shankar and you know, right. so by the time I come onto the tour hi I'm Larry from Rolling Stone the first piece had come out and they got slammed so I was like a pariah Bill Grant took me aside because he was the promoter. And he goes, kid, just hang around. We're playing uh um, at Long Island next, and then we come back to the Garden. I'll get you an interview with George Harrison. Now, I had already done a preview of um, Blood on the Tracks, Dylan's uh, album, and that's how I met Dylan. Right. And um, uh, I had heard the album before it came out. And so uh, the day of the show at the Garden, Graham takes me down to the dressing room, and then I open the door, and there's George Harrison. He's sitting in a lotus position with all these pillows and incense burning and, you know, the things on the wall. And uh, he's very wary still. So I sit opposite him, and I said, uh, hey, George, have you heard Tangled Up in Blue yet? And he goes... Yeah, isn't it great? And we both start singing oh, Tangled Blue together. That's great. And, and so he, he, he gave me... So wait a minute. So I, I do the piece, and I say, look, you got to give the guy credit. This is music that he loves. You know, he's got Ravi Shankar, his mentor, you know, opening for him. Uh, you know, he doesn't want to do the old Beatles songs. I don't, you know... I mean, that's what I write. Then, apparently, Jan Wiener... Wanted to keep the attack, and he rewrites my copy and leaves my name on it. So now I'm saying, oh, shit. So it wasn't It was it wasn't even Xeroxes. What were those things? Mimeographs. where well, uh, you'd type something, you'd have the... Yeah, was that, was that it? Oh, yeah, yeah with yeah. carbon paper? The carbon, carbon. Yeah. Carbon copies. Yeah. So I had a carbon copy of my original article, and I sent it to Harrison in England. And a year later, I'm sitting at the uh, bottom line. I think it was to see uh, uh, Kinky Friedman. And all of a sudden, a guy comes up and says, hey, Larry. I look up. It's George Harrison. He goes, you know, I thought you were really a schmuck <laughs> when, you, when that article came out. I'm glad you sent me what your article was. Now we know who the real asshole is,
0: Jan Wenner. Wow. <laughs> Good story. Good story. You met and you met Leonard Cohen
2: oh. around this time. Yeah, yeah. seventy
0: three. I did yeah.
2: a piece on Leonard for a yeah. long Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it was the kind of thing where um, you know, I can, I get, I can get very compulsive and uh you know it's, it's i always want to get more and more and more so and leonard was very accommodating so i mean you know i i went to the shows i went back to his hotel we mm-hmm. were being interviewed for hours and hours and he was just such a wonderful guy i mean you know of all those people that i met in rock and roll leonard was the real mensch you
0: know that's nice you and guys know, became lifelong friends yeah I love that he would uh, he would send you an email and write, "Dear Jew."
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, my email was New York Jew. <laughs> right. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. What was he? I mean, what was he like to spend time with? I mean, I don't think we've had
2: anybody on this podcast that knew Leonard Cohen. Well, you know, okay. One time we were at his house, and uh, uh, this—I guess he was between girlfriends, or the girlfriend wasn't there. You know, because Leonard was a real ladies' man. But uh, I remember we were. Um, <laughs> we were, we we ate f- TV dinners and we watched Joe Pine. <laughs> Joe Pine.
0: <laughs> wow. There you go, Gil. That's a name that's come up on this show. Oh yeah. man, He's a talk I mean, show host. That, yeah, Leonard. Yeah,
2: I love that. Uh, Jerry Springer. He loved. He liked. That's all, the kind of he stuff loved he liked. Watching all that stuff. Wow. He had a great sense of humor. Leonard.
0: Wow. 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 So tell us about the Dylan meeting. I mean, you wrote the piece about Blood on the Tracks because because right. you, you you saw him live. I also love the story of when you saw him, I guess you were still pretty much a kid. Well, and Your w- your father said he looked like a, oh, yeah, a yeah, shipping clerk. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you,
2: you met him once, or you saw him once. So I saw him, at him the once. W- at White Plains. a White Plains. It was a few months after I, uh, I bought the album. And, uh, and again, I was too young to drive. My parents drove us there. I was with a friend. We were sitting all the way in the back. And um, and then uh, my parents picked us up afterwards. And it, this was, you know, he did the first half, you know, it was just solo. And then the second half he brought on the band. And, you know, there's, a, you know, the, well, uh, Forest Hills supposedly he was booed. Nobody was booing in a white sure, plains, Sure, I'm sure not. But, but uh, it, it really was something else. I mean, to hear this music just amplified and, you know, how great the band is. So uh, I was really hyped up. And on the way home, uh, my father says, what are you so excited about? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, when I came, I thought, I didn't know where you were uh, sitting. So I got there early because they went to a movie. And I walked all the way to the front. I said, what? You walked <laughs> up to the front? What, what kind was he wearing those boots with the buckles? What, what, kind, what kind of stripes were on his suit? I couldn't see from where I was. I mean, and my father's gone. What are you getting so excited for? He's just a little puny guy. looks like a shipping
0: clerk. I love that. It's <laughs> one of my favorite passages in the book. That was 66. That was 66. Then you see him again in 74 is when you see him sitting in the car? 74. On right. the street? Right. And then you did the piece for Blood on the Tracks, and, right. and you and McGuinn approached him. The, so, Do I so, have this right? Yeah. That's yeah. the right
2: chronology. But yeah. uh, So the Blood on the Tracks piece came out, and then about six months later, uh, I had heard, or eight months— I had heard that Dylan was back in the, uh, his old haunts uh, in the Greenwich Village. He, I, I, he was working with Jacques Levy, who was a great uh, Broadway uh, director, off-Broadway director. And uh, he was doing uh, uh, the album. Um, and um, I said... And McGuinn had played, I think, a gig in uh, New Jersey. And then we met afterwards. We went to Chinatown. And I said... Uh, Hey, it was like 2 in the morning. I said, let's go to the other end. Maybe Bob's there. And um, he says, okay. And we walk in the other end, and there's nobody there. And we walk all the way to the back, and we look around the corner. And at the table is Dylan, um, Bobby Newworth, Jacques Levy, a bunch of other people. And he's, Dylan sees McGuinn, and he jumps up. He knocks all the all the glasses off the table and goes... Roger, where you been? We've been waiting for you all night. <laughs> I mean, nobody, nobody was going to be there, and uh, that's when uh, he says, Yeah, hey, "We're going to do this incredible tour. Uh, it's going to be like a gypsy caravan. We're just going to go to a place now with no notice and sell tickets a day of the thing." And you know, and he's, he says, "You got to come on this tour." And then when uh, Roger says, "You know, Larry, right?" He goes, "Oh yeah, you're the one who did the piece. You should come on the tour." And I'd rather have you. Chronicled it than anybody. He else. was
0: impressed that you had done a piece on Hurricane Carter, which was a yes, uh, a pet cause of his. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're not the person that that, uh, that turned him onto that. He was. He. No. It wasn't no. your. It wasn't your writing. No. That got him involved.
2: No. He. Uh, um. He had actually read uh, Ruben's book. Ruben's book. <laughs> this guy Richie. Uh, I forget the guy's name. Richie something uh, was one of the early guys, but the big. The guy who spearheaded Ruben Carter's whole thing was George Lois, the famous ad Oh, guy.
0: yes. Right. That's right. Who's still around? Yeah. George Lois. Canara. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This this documentary is fascinating. Gilbert, you got to see this Scorsese documentary that that, that, that Ratso's in. Do you in. have
2: Netflix? <laughs> he doesn't no, it know.
0: It costs, it costs money. No. I, uh, I don't have a television. I believe Dara has Netflix. <laughs>
2: You got, uh, You're okay. asking
0: the wrong person. Uh, right. So yeah. you
2: should. It's on Netflix. You should watch it. So really this good.
0: this leads to the. We'll talk about the documentary too, which is a very interesting approach too. The the put-ons in the documentary. Right. If, I, if I'm not giving away any spoilers. No. But this this led to the book. At some point, you parted company with Rolling Stone. Yeah. Fell out.
2: Well, I mean, and it's in the documentary because yeah. I gave yeah. them. Yeah. So don't forget. Uh, again, when I was doing the book, I had a smaller tape recorder. It wasn't a big one; I had to plug in, but I had a smaller tape recorder. And everywhere I went, because I I had been influenced by those Andy Warhol books, uh-huh. and because um, they were basically somebody following Andy Warhol around and taping everything he said and then editing it. So that's what I did on this tour. I had a little recorder, but after a while, you put it on the table, everybody forgets that the recorders go on. So I had. Basically, the entire tour, so I gave Scorsese all of the tapes, and he he used a couple of them. One of them we used was the big argument I got in with Rolling Stone because Rolling Stone has gone. well, uh, the second piece you sent it's got a lot of holes in it uh, for, uh, like variety is reporting that uh, the ticket prices are up and they're playing big hauls now. Why are you not talking about that and I said. What are you, crazy? What, this is not the Wall Street Journal. This is Rolling Stone. This is a musical cultural event of our lifetime. You want me to write about the ticket prices? And uh, so one thing led to another, and they said, okay, we're taking away your expenses. You could do spot coverage, which meant I couldn't stay on the road because I couldn't afford you know, without the expenses. So that's where I had this great scene that's in, Ronaldo and Clara, which was the movie—a whole other, that, story. Whole other yeah. story. Dylan made <laughs> a movie a, on the tour. You know this movie, Jordan Ronaldo and Clara, oh, yeah. that Dylan it made it like a with four Sam
0: Shepard was writing the screenplay for. Four forward. and a half hour yeah. movie. Yeah,
2: And the beginning of the movie is me and Roger McGuinn are in um, uh, the lobby of one of the hotels, and uh, you know that when I got on the tour. Uh, besides getting hassles from Rolling Stone, I was getting hassles from Louis Kemp, who was Bob's childhood friend, who he elevated to become the promoter of this tour. The guy was a fishmonger. He had a you know, a, sa- <laughs> he had a salmon distillery, a hatchery, whatever you call it, in Alaska. And now he made, Bob made him, his childhood friend, headed a tour. So once we, in New York, I had total access to everybody. We get on the road, he goes... What are you doing? You can't stay at the same hotel with us. So, what are you talking about? Bob invited me in. No, no, you're press. You can't stay here. So, I had this running argument with Louie. By then, I had told Bob that I really wanted to write a book. So, um, I'm standing there with McGuinn, and Dylan and Joni Mitchell walk in, and I'm complaining that, you know, uh, you know, I have no nowhere to stay now, and, and I was also helping the uh, the film crew a lot. Uh, you know, giving them, bringing them subjects that they flipped out over, mm-hmm. and they were telling Bob, Ratso is bringing us golden things. You got to keep them on. You got to. So Bob and and Joni Mitchell come up, and they, Bob goes, Ratso, what's the matter? I said, What's the matter? Rolling Stone just cut me off. I, you know, I can't stay on the tour. I want to write this book. He goes. Rats, what do you need? He goes, "I go, "I need a room." So he goes to Louie or Barry, or Barry, one of the other promoters, "Get him a room. What else you need?" I said, "Well, I need uh, per diem. I have no expenses. We'll get you per diem. What else you need?" And I'm literally closer. I'm maybe two feet from him, and I start screaming, "I need access) <laughs> And Dylan looks at me and he goes, you need X-Lex? What do you believe <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So, yeah, so that's uh, how I stayed on the tour. Why wasn't Joni
0: Mitchell happy at first with uh, with, with, me? with with what she wrote?
2: Well, first, she wasn't happy if, if, even before I wrote anything. When she came on the tour, she came for one night, and then she just loved it so much. She stayed for the rest of right, the tour. Right, right. And uh, so... Um, after a few uh, dates, uh, I was backstage once with her, and I start talking to her. And uh, I said, you know, something like, you know, my three favorite male songwriters are Bob, Leonard Cohn, and Kinky Friedman. And she goes, what do you mean male songwriters? What about me? I'm just as good as them. And I said, well, Joni, yeah, but, you know, I can't compare you with them because you're a female songwriter. You have a different perspective, blah, blah, blah. And we went back and forth for a long time. Uh, We eventually became very uh, friendly uh, on that tour. And then she moved to New York and we hung out for a long time. But uh, so she was one of the people. When When the tour was over, I finished the book. I sent two copies of the book out. One to Bob, who was with Howard Alk, cutting what would become Ronaldo and Clara. Mm-hmm. And the other uh, copy of the book I sent to Joni Mitchell. I, a few days later, I get a call. I come home, and there's a, a message on my answering machine. It's from Howard Alk. Ratzo, we read the book. Bob read it in one night, he gave it to me. I read it in one night. It's fantastic. You 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 yeah. We didn't think you could do it, but you really did it. So Uh, they loved it. And and Dylan gave me that quote, the Warren piece of rock and roll. roll. So then the next night, I get a call like six in the morning, which means it's three o'clock in the morning in L.A. And it's Joni Mitchell. And Joni Mitchell goes, "Ratso, I read the book. How could you have me say all those things?" I said, "You said them. What do you mean?" And uh, and then I said, "Look." Go back, reread the book. I had quotes from uh, uh, Gurdjieff um, about Aspensky. Uh, no, no, Aspensky about Gurdjieff. And uh, Gurdjieff was talking about a, a rolling caravan that would expose everybody's, you know, what they really like. And she read the book in that context and she called me back. and She said, you're right, don't touch a word.
0: So. It's, it's a great read. I mean, I've read a lot of books about Packs. rock, rock and roll, and tours, and it's a, it's a, it's a great read. And the, you're talking about that, that party. Is it for the, for the, 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 the owner of Folk City when Bette Midler yep. gets up right. and 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 Phil Oaks is there? I mean, it's, I mean, what a, what a great time it was in history to be an exactly. eyewitness to all of this.
2: Exactly. And that's why I wanted to document it.
3: Yeah. Ah! My blue-eyed son Where have you been? My darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains What and I've crawled on six crooked highways Been in the middle of seven sad forests Been out in front of a deserted oceans Been ten thousand miles in the mouth of a graveyard And that's a high. Well, it's a high. Well, it's a high, and it's a hard. well, it's a hard. Ray gonna
0: fall. And then Robert Gordon Lightfoot shows up, on and Harry Dean Stanton shows up,
2: yeah, and Sam
0: Shepard, and
2: yeah, it was just incredible.
0: Dylan's mother is along for the ride.
2: I am happy <laughs> that not only do I have the only. Kind of quasi interviews, but I have a lot of conversations between me and Bob's mother. What was her name? Beatty? Beatty Beattie Zimmerman. Beattie, and she was so great. I mean, I, sometimes I'd be sitting in the stands with her and, you know, we'd listen and Bob would be singing Hurricane. And then he'd be over and everybody'd give him a standing ovation. She'd stand up and she'd hit her chest and goes, Gets you right here. Gets you right here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, and then uh, um, I, I, I remember. Uh, Saying to her, you know, what do you think of all these people who, uh, you know, wrote about you and your husband, you know, by hoodwinking you and saying, you know, coming, coming, like they were visiting Hibbing. She goes, I never gave them anything, you know. Uh, I don't talk about uh, uh, my son. My son is Bob Dylan. He created himself. I'm Beatty Zimmerman. He's Bob Dylan. I mean, she. Nice. Was, she wow. Was, she, she got it. Oh yeah, she, she was, really got she, it. She was, she was a wonderful person.
1: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this.
0: I want to ask about Houdini.
2: Let's talk about he, this quickly. He, he just escaped. He
1: uh, did you know, Gil,
0: that Ratso wrote a Houdini book? Yeah, with a yeah. Con- with some controversial mm. ideas
1: in it. Now you you have like those kind of Richard Belzerish viewpoints. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That, a little conspiracy theory. Everything's
1: a fucking conspiracy. Well... And it's
0: an interesting theory you guys hatched. He was a Russian spy. I have spy to say. Well, no.
2: No, not a Russian spy. A UK he, spy. He was spying for the UK. But that we verified. Right, right. Uh, you know, we actually have found a diary of the head of MI5 who uh, had made indications that, you know, when he was in Russia or when he was in Germany, he was sending back missives, And, you know... Got a letter from HH, brought it right to the War Department, and we correlated the date, and that's when Houdini was in Germany. So, uh, but the other thing, well, we never said um, definitively that he was killed by, by the, the
0: spiritualist. But it's a, it's an right. interesting theory, and you guys support it.
1: Well, the, so he was getting information from the Nazis, or no, and, no, this is the way before the Nazis. The what? Oh, this is in the early oh, 1900s. That's right. Yeah, right. And he um, was
2: spying on their weapons, on their weaponry.
1: Did, yeah, because uh,
2: the UK was always worried about the Germany's uh, potential. Yeah,
1: Germany. and I remember someone saying to me that they always questioned that story about him being punched, right? In the yeah. appendix, because they said if that were the case, then all these prize fighters uh, uh, would have
2: ruptured appendix. You're right. But when we did the research, we found out that he wasn't just punched once; he was punched three separate times in Montreal. Mm-hmm. One time was um at a demonstration at the University of McGill, where he you know he said to the students, "You come up, you could see how I've trained so hard for my stunts that you could punch me in the stomach, and he would tense and get ready and punch, and you know there's nothing to it. About a few days later, he's in his dressing room at the theater, and two of the students from there were actually uh, doing pictures of him because he had saw their sketches before. He said, come to my dressing room and do a thing for me. So they were sketching, and an older guy comes in, and this guy was, uh, he had worked in the university. I think he worked at the library, but he wasn't a student, and it turns out he was a spiritualist. And he started talking to Houdini about the Old Testament and stuff like that. And then he said, and uh, uh, would it be okay if I punched you in the stomach? And you know, Houdini thought he'd let him get upset. And, and Houdini says, yes. And he's about to tense his mind. And the guy just punches him three times. Before he could fishes. tense up, yeah. Then the next night when they were ready to leave to go to Detroit – Houdini is sitting in the lobby of the hotel, reading a paper, and a big burly guy comes up and just punches him in the stomach. Now, none of these things could have killed him because it's true. If you're punched in the stomach, you can't you can't burst your appendix that way. But apparently, our theory was that um, in the weeks before, there were a few examples where Houdini or his wife – came down with Tomaine poisoning. And our theory was that the spiritualist was slowly poisoning him and that um, eventually... Mina Crandon and that crew? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. For people
0: who were working for her? Yeah. Just, and just to tell our audience, she was a spiritualist that he had made attempts to debunk.
2: Right. Yeah, that was a big, big uh, fight between the two of them. And yeah. he did debunk her. And and that really pissed off all her followers. In fact, one of her followers, you know, I was I, I happened to, to uh, I, I met her. Um, I guess it was a granddaughter at a uh, one of the is where they try to contact her. every year. They try. Mm-hmm. To, Sid Radner used to do them.
0: There's one on the Upper East Side by me. Yeah, where where he apparently had an apartment.
2: And and they did uh, one in Vegas, and I think Penn and Teller were the guests of honor mm-hmm. at the seance. And she was there, the granddaughter. It turns out she lived on Long Island. I said, well, you think I can come out and you know interview you? She goes, sure. So I go out to her house, and they, you know her husband and fixed me a nice dinner. We eat. I start interviewing her. And when we finished the interview, I said, you wouldn't have any letters or any diaries or anything like that. She goes, come with me. She opens up a closet in a spare bedroom. It's filled with all of her papers, her letters, because her mother was an academic. Her mother kept all of her mother's papers, so we were. I was going through the scrapbooks, and there was a scrapbook, and there's a guy named De Wickoff, who was one of her millionaire supporters, and Houdini is in the hospital now, where he had you know, the, in Detroit. The, in Detroit, yeah, the appendix had burst. He's slowly dying, and. This guy writes something like, "I couldn't, I, I couldn't sit by and do nothing while that Jew uh, maligned you." So it's almost like a wow. mea culpa. Wow! So, so they had it out and, for him. And, oh yeah, I, yeah.
1: I heard like um, Houdini for a short amount of time became friends with Sir Conan Doyle. Yes. Well,
0: he factors into uh, yes. Ratso's theory. Yes. Yes. Yeah,
1: because
2: Conan Doyle became a, 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 an avid spiritualist because his son died in the war. So, he, you know, this was a case of a lot of people. They lose their kids and then they want to contact them. And these fake spiritualists would say, oh, no problem, we can contact. And they'd have these seances and say, oh, your son says... You should turn over your uh, the lease to the house to, you, to, to us. You know, I mean, it was crazy stuff. And, and I heard
1: a story that Sir Conan Doyle's wife, right. she said she got in touch with Houdini's mother right. and spoke to her right. in heaven. Right. Now... First of all, it was in perfect English. The right. mother couldn't never, speak never English. Speak right. a word of English, right? It, she called him Harry. Right. His name was Eric. Right. And she puts a, she, a cross right on the letter. <laughs> right. That was a tip. Gil,
0: one. you and I are gonna go. There's a Chinese restaurant near me on the Upper East Side. You aware of this? It's in some tenement where apparently he lived for a short time. And there's an organization, one of the Houdini groups, that that has a seance. We're gonna go, you and I, next Halloween. Oh, we're that's okay. That's go the
2: tenement on the east side, it's on, east side. It's on the upper east side. Yeah, in we the, should. That's 70's where he first lived. But then he has where a, he first a, a, lived. A, then he had a, a brownstone in
1: Harlem.
0: Yeah, but this uh, at we, this location we, they they stage a Houdini really. se- a seance we, we every year. We should
1: go there and say, "Okay, we won Humphrey Bogart as a guest." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but John they can put us in touch.
2: But the thing with, about uh, um, Conan Doyle's wife is hilarious. Because uh, she graduated eventually into getting doing autograph uh, automatic writing from a four thousand year old spirit named Phineas, and and so Conan Doyle was just amazed by this. So Conan Doyle was saying, "Well, uh, we have to go. Uh, we have to go to uh, Norway. It was the middle of winter. We have to go to Norway to spread the word of spiritualism." And then the wife through. Phineas through the wife says, "No, no, not no way. Maybe someplace warmer.
1: No. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> whatever she wanted, she just
2: Phineas would tell him to do what he did. Hilarious."
1: And, and I heard one time in front of Sir Conan Doyle, Houdini did one of the simplest. Yes. Like, hey, look, I took my thumb off. (laughs) That you do with any two-year-old. Right. Well, he had
0: fake fingers. Yes.
1: And Sir Conan Doyle said that he has some kind of weird power over his body that he can disconnect parts of his body (laughs) and reattach them. And that... Conan uh, Doyle was, you know, uh, just,
2: uh, I mean, it's crazy. That, I mean, here's a guy who wrote one of the most sophisticated characters, mm-hmm, Sherlock Holmes. Certainly. a Logical, rational character. And he was just, uh, you know. And you I could, heard afterwards
1: you, you, well, Houdini was basically like, what are you, an asshole? Yeah, well, what about <laughs> the, uh, the the little fairy photographs? where the, these kids were making
2: fake photographs putting fairies in, in the pictures and Conan Doyle fell for a hook oh, on sink
0: what's, what's your co-writer's name I want to give him credit I've forgotten. I'm Kalush. Kalush. It, I forgot Bill Bill Kalouche and I heard him say that uh, the, the the Tony Curtis treatment of Houdini uh, is an affront it's an insult well, of course to, to Houdini's memory yeah that, Houdini that,
2: wouldn't die no, in one of the right.
0: tricks
1: that he invented not only is it
0: Hollywood horseshit but right. that he wouldn't die in one of his own right. in one of well, his any, own contraptions
1: any of the Hollywood biographies to this day they're all bullshit <laughs> right
0: i got a quick question about houdini from a guest for you ratso sure. pete nelson has has uh, has ratso ever thought of writing a screenplay about houdini either a straight biopic or a super fictionalized spy adventure
2: well um what happened was that um uh, our book collusion i was optioned and uh it kept on being reoptioned and reoptioned and reoptioned and uh they got Lionsgate had it for a long time and uh they got uh Noah Oppenheim who's uh did uh, that uh, movie Jackie the screenplay of Jackie mm-hmm. uh he's a great writer he also uh he's the head of NBC News now um and so he actually wrote the script. Based, okay, so a screenplay exists based yeah. uh, based on our book. And yeah, so the screenplay. And then eventually uh Lionsgate had a change of, you know, administration. The new guys don't want to do it's the old the films, right? Yeah. But Frank Marshall was attached to the film. Wow. And Frank Marshall loved the, the project so much, he brought it to another studio and they bought it in turnaround and they just did another revision with Noah. So
1: Good. So it's moving along. Knockwood going like a seven percent
0: solution kind of movie. You know yeah, that movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The the other times we used to hang out all the time was those brunches oh. from Al Goldstein.
0: Well, publisher well, we, of Screw. We talked magazine. a little bit about Al on uh, on email. You yes. and I, yeah.
2: Well, I I'm pretty sure I got you to come to those brunches, right? They what?
0: He's got you to come Didn't to them. Didn't I get you to yeah,
2: come to yeah. brunches? of okay. Those are the ones Grandpa Al was at. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, the, the cast of characters is incredible. <laughs> but he, he'd be uh, there
1: so with his whole western, ha- western
2: outfit. Yeah, and you'd have the the guy who owned the deli, Second Avenue Deli, Abe. Okay, he was there. You'd have the guy who wrote David and Lisa, the psychologist.
1: Wow, he, he would have there. lawyers like, who were trying to have him thrown in jail. <laughs> <laughs> he was taking them. So right. on right. and, and, and you would have. Uh, um, um, Uh, uh, Michael Baden, who was...
2: Oh, the
0: forensic guy. Yes, yes, yes. The guy you involved in the Houdini project.
1: I I remember sitting next to this black woman who was a, she was a dominatrix. Right. And she went into detail. These are what Goldstein's
0: she, brunches? Yes. Yeah. I knew him in LA. I didn't get any of these brunch yeah. invitations. No, he had these great brunches. I don't think he had them in LA. Okay. Although he took me to the friars to hang out with Larry And Flint. since
1: he had, <laughs> he still had money back then and right. was still generous, I used to go there and say, I'd order a brunch and then I'd say, and I won't want to go. No, no. That, but, that, 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 let me tell the story. Okay. <laughs>
2: No, <laughs> let him no. tell it. <laughs> you, you knew that, you know. I mean, this was heaven for Gilbert because it was really good food. It was an Upper East Side restaurant at the beginning, and um, and they had a great brunch menu. But Gilbert, not only did he want to eat. At the brunch, but he wanted to take some. Of course. Know, yeah. Right? yeah, I'm familiar. So, so Gilbert would look at the menu, and he'd go, and and, and he'd, you know, the waiter's going around taking all our orders, and he'd go, I can't make my mind up. I don't know whether I want the omelet or I want the French toast. And it was so long that Al just said, Gilbert, order both of <laughs>
1: <laughs> he did that every week. That's <laughs> yeah. hilarious. And I go home with like a big shopping <laughs> bag with like about five brunches. What about the?
2: Um, did, you, uh, did you ever come with me to uh, the Carnegie for when it, with Henry Youngman for lunch?
0: Oh, tell us I, a Henny Youngman story. Because oh, I
2: was, yeah. I was uh, one of the people I brought into the lampoon was Henny Youngman. Yeah, Drew told me. And and uh, <laughs> you know, we took Henny Youngman out to Coney Island and we did something with, uh, <laughs> with naked girls and then playing yeah. the violin in the back. And so Henny had a, a great uh, an arrangement with the great Leo Steiner, who Leo was the greatest uh, deli man ever. And when the Carnegie was under Leo's watch. It was just fantastic. Those were the good days. I remember. I, I used to come in with Kinky, and um, Leo would see us, and he'd go, this is the market. They didn't have like a VIP area. They had, Kinky and Rats are here, give them linen, because that meant <laughs> you don't get the paper. They, they would have, bring out an actual uh, napkin for you, so- uh, so, so Henny had uh, an arrangement where he could bring anybody he wanted to lunch, right? Free. Wow. You know, I mean, he was a great guy, Leo. So, you know, we'd sit there. Henny would be cracking jokes the whole time. We'd be eating. The meal is over, and uh, there's no check. And so we'd say, so, so, what kind of tip should we leave? Henny would go, Leave him a dollar each. <laughs> So I swear. So, oh God! So he put down like six do- six single dollar bills. The waiter would come over and go, "What's this? You're giving me single dollar bills." And then and Lenny would go,
1: "Yeah, take that, you schmuck! You're a lousy waiter." And they would start fighting seriously.
0: Unbelievable!
1: <laughs> Unbelievable! And wow. then, but wasn't it that they changed owners at the Carnegie, and then they they well, stopped. They stopped all the free lunches for henny yeah but that that leo died
2: he had died of a brain uh, tumor and And that the the, the whole place which i
1: thought was like insane because you went to a place like that exactly because you saw henny young exactly
0: oh in those days the food was great under leo oh really great it's a great
2: experience yeah yeah any al lewis stories Uh, come to mind just uh, um, I guess the, the story that I, I recount in the uh, article I did about uh, um, um, Al, where uh, Al called Al Lewis as a character witness <laughs> in one of his okay. – I, I think he was he, he was uh, 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 being accused of harassing his secretary. I remember that. And he did – well, accused. He did. He'd, he'd call up the secretary and you – piece of shit you know i don't know what the the, the fight was over but uh and the, and grandpa you know came up on on the stand and he just just made a mo it was like uh abby hoffman at the chicago oh, he just God. made a mockery <laughs> of the whole thing and uh you know it and he it said to, like and house friend charlie the stefano was his, his uh defense lawyer and charlie would say you know uh, well, Mister Lewis, uh, tell us uh, uh, how long do you know now? He goes, I already
1: told you how long I know <laughs> you now. When it was beforehand. <laughs> he
2: was—he was not a cooperative witness. No, he was not a cooperative no, witness. Not
1: a cooperative <laughs> witness. <laughs> I, I remember one time Al Goldstein explaining in detail to me. He said, uh, "Did you ever? Uh, did you ever jerk off on the toilet?" And I said, I don't think so, no. And he goes, you know, you should try it. Because, uh, you know, the cold porcelain feels nice on your balls. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the wit and wisdom. Uh, Rats, before we get out of here, here's another question from a fan. Jason Pagano, I love private parts. Uh, I know Howard said he's ther- he hated acting in the movie. Uh, uh, Not specifically But Larry, do you know if Miss America Was ever greenlit as a movie Or if certain people or certain studios Did not want to make the follow-up film P.S. I love your work
2: No, I mean, uh, uh, there was no movie interest in (laughs) in Miss America.
0: Even even with all the money Private Parts made.
2: Well, you know, think about it. Private Parts had a a story. A story. Um, You know, Miss America was basically just a a, a series of... And in, in some ways, Miss America was much more intimate because he talked about his... Uh, jerking off addi- internet porn addiction. <laughs> and, and he talked about his OCD. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know. Not movie material. No.
0: Yeah. Uh, tell us about the new album. Well, Before we go, and we'll plug it.
2: Cool. Um, so, at my uh, advanced age, uh, what happened was I, after the Dylan tour, I started writing um, lyrics, uh, first with Rick Derringer and then with John Cale. And uh, we wrote a number of really good songs together. And then Kale moved to L.A. Uh-huh. And uh, so I just went back to writing books and stuff. And I had a, uh, I guess you'd call it one of the early podcasts at the KGB bar, um, you know, in the East Village. And we'd have a lot of, like, young musicians from Brooklyn on. So one night, you know, these two musicians were playing uh, Graham Parson songs. And when this show was over... Tim uh, Bracy and Elizabeth Nelson come up to me and go, Ratzo, we didn't know you were the co-host of this. We're a big fan of yours. We read your Dylan oh, book. Oh, nice. So uh, you got to come hang out with us in Brooklyn. So I said sure, and I started hanging out in the Brooklyn indie scene, and um, I got my juices flowing again. I had some songs that I never gave Kale, and I, I just I wanted to get the songs out. I never thought I'd be the vehicle. So uh, I, I hooked up with uh, Vin Cachione from uh, Caged Animals, a, amazing producer, and uh, we, uh, we did a demo. And my idea was I was going to do, um, the, take a page out of the Kinky Friedman playbook, which is you do a tribute album sure, to yourself, to yourself. <laughs> and you get famous people to sing you things, Willie Nelson and, you know, a lot of love it, people like that. So I was going to do the same thing. So we did a demo of one song and uh, Our Lady of Light. And um, I, we finish it, and Vince says, why are you giving this to somebody else? You should sing your own songs. You have a unique voice right away. Unique voice, what? Like Florence Foster Jennings? <laughs> I mean,
0: look, you thought he was insulting yeah, you.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I just thought it was weird. So I I, I brought the uh, the track to Hal Wilner, who's a legendary. The
0: legendary Hal Wilner. Yeah, Lou, Lou Reed, Marion Faithful. Marianne Faithful, right.
2: Ginsburg, Burroughs. Right, Ginsburg, everybody. right. And, um, and, you know, I play it in his studio and we listen to it and it's over. I said, Hal, what do you think? Should I sing my own songs? And, you know, he listens with his eyes closed and he opens his eyes, he takes a deep breath, and he goes, What are you waiting for? So I took that as a yes and uh, I did the album and we sold it to Lucky Number Records and it came out April 5th. How's it doing? It's doing great. It's getting it's getting incredible reviews, and and you know, a lot of the reviews are. We don't have Leonard Cohen around anymore, so this is the next best thing. And I was going to say, I was, I, say, I was so when thrilled. I listened to
0: Our Lady of Light. To me, it sounded you sounded like Leonard singing a Leonard Cohen song.
2: Yeah, and then sometimes they sound like Dylan singing a Dylan song, but I mean, look, those are two those of are my influences, great influences. Right? Of course, I mean, you of know, course. I'm proud of that.
0: Congratulations for seeing this dream project through. Yes. And you asked Dylan to
2: write liner notes at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Do I have that right? You do have that right. Um, It it was uh, uh, backstage in Vegas after one of his shows. And, uh, you know, we were chatting. I I was in Vegas um, staying with uh, uh, Penn and Emily Gillette. And, uh, is Emily it, here? By the way, did she come in? There yeah, she is. She's there. And then, uh, and then during the day, I w- w- was working with Mike Tyson on his two books, and um, and so I go to the show, and uh, you know we're talking after the show's over, and I and I said, oh by the way, Bob, uh, I'm doing my own album, and he goes, you're doing an album? I said, yeah, and uh, Nick Cave does a duet with me. Mm-hmm. Nick Cave does a duet with you. I said, yeah, I said. And I want you, and I see him tense up. <laughs> and I said, "To write the liner notes." And then he goes, he like breathes easy." He goes, oh, "I don't know if I could write liner notes." I said, "World gone wrong." He goes, "Yeah, that was real good." <laughs> but uh, and then I, Penn, I never followed. Penn him. got the job. Penn wrote some incredible liner notes. You went to the right man. Yeah, really.
0: You went to the right man. Terrific. I like your Dylan, but I like uh, I like Ratso's Dylan too.
1: See. We'll have to have a Dylan off. You know, with well, his uh, yeah. his relationship... Let's, let's
3: do that, Gilbert.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is whinier. This yeah. is more high-pitched. Yeah. Uh, between Larry Charles knowing Dylan and Ratso knowing Dylan, I think we have to get you together with Dylan. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh,
2: let's send him
0: the... Uh, let's send him the bit. The bit. We're yeah. going to make a project out of it. Does he have a sense of humor about himself like that? Will he laugh? Yeah, he
2: does. He has a great set. Well, you saw it in the film. That's true. In this That's documentary, true. He's, I love that he's so influenced funny. by Children
0: of Paradise of all oh, things, yeah. and did the white and did the white face. Yeah, but the really interv- interesting influences. His
2: interviews in the film are so funny when he's talking about Scarlett Rivera, and it's so he is he is deadpan, funny and
0: tongue in cheek. He's always been a bit of a prankster. Yeah, 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 yeah. Terrific! I mean, congratulations on the record. And by the way, could I put a
2: plug in? Please. Oh, the new website www.ratzo.org. Not that I'm a nonprofit, but I just couldn't get Ratso That some schmuck in San Francisco has ratso.com So uh, we have a new website. All of the books, personally inscribed. Whatever you want me to say, friends, enemies, you know, bar mitzvahs. I'll I'll sign anything. Uh, and uh, you can get the album there too.
0: I want to thank our mutual friend Drew Friedman. Yes. To who I called and I said, tell me some cool shit about Ratso. <laughs> and he had a lot of good stuff. Uh, and I, I, I want to say to this about your book, reading your book. There were some sad moments where I realized how much of that New York City is gone. F- uh, Fillmore, Kenny's Castaway, Max's, CBGB's, sure. The Ritz, The Knitting Factory, uh, Palladium, Roseland, it's gone.
3: They're all
2: gone. And they're all it's, Starbucks.
0: It's all gone. It's comedy star- music. It's horrible. How do you feel about that? The death of record stores, too. Obviously, you're not happy about it. We well, have no. talked something we've talked about on this show. Yeah. Did you see the Tower Records doc that Tom Hanks' son made? No, not oh, yet. Oh, you must see it. I heard it's really good. You must see it, but it'll break your heart.
2: Yeah, no. I mean, it's you know, it's it's, it's so-called progress is such bullshit. I mean, look at Times Square. I mean, no, you know, it's, or St. Mark's. When, when we were you, growing you up, we could about... go to Times Square and see a, a train flea circus you know, Professor Heckler's Flea Circus. Now you go and you get, you know... The Disney it's store. Ironically, it's ironic, though, instead of, uh, you know, ha- going indoors to those, uh, um, you know, the... Um, what did it oh, all the porn places, yeah, but the, I remember. The,
1: the, you put the court in... The peep in, show. The peep yes, shows, uh, right. what was, what so was the name of that? Instead what, of that... What was the name of that? What, big, the big one? The Harmony? It no, was Show the, World. Show World, World. Yeah. yeah.
0: But instead of that... Why am I the one answering this? <laughs> instead
2: of that, now you have... Naked women with body paints harassing little kids. I mean, it's crazy.
1: (laughs) Times have
0: changed and not for the best.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing I always talk about on this show, we always talk, and that is that movies are dying out.
0: Movie theaters are dying out in New York. Yeah, like
1: the whole idea of going to the movies, that's going to be like vaudeville. Well, but look at, I mean, the way the
2: movie theaters that have adapted are the ones... Like Nighthawk Cinema, yeah. where you can go there. Yeah. you can you can order food. Oh, a you waitress back it, and chair. you lie back and you can drink alcohol yeah. while you. are I mean, that's great.
0: Yeah, or the Alamo Draft House. Right, but But uh, boy, the I've watched ten theaters close in the last five yeah, years. Yeah, no, I mean, and know. the Zigfeld, we lost the Zigfeld.
2: Well,
1: what about so, bookstores? There's bookstores no, book too. Oh, bookstores! Book uh, yeah, uh, yeah, crazy. Yeah. I used to love uh, hang out in bookstores. Sure.
0: It's all changed, not for the better. See that documentary, All Things Must Pass, it's called. Did you see The Wrecking Crew, Doc? No. Also fascinating. Those are my two recommendations. You want to thank this man?
1: No. Okay.
2: <laughs> the website one last time? www.ratso.org.
0: Okay. And I want to ask you off, Mike, when we shut down about uh, Dylan's traveling Wilburys' uh, career.
1: Okay. I, I remember one
0: uh, Al Lewis story. Uh-oh. Well, take us out on an Al Lewis story.
1: This is yeah. not the one about Pen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he he would wear, you know, he always dressed in his you know, the strings, western <laughs> tie, and the snap shirts, and the western boots, and his teeth were like brown, and he had the long, rotten fingernails, and smelly cigar. Right. And And the frizzy gray hair and and we were at one of the brunches and uh al goldstein is saying you know i'm i'm putting out a new magazine and and each each month is gonna have a celebrity interview of the month and uh and he goes this month it's pen and, and uh al lewis turns to me goes ho? Oh? <laughs> and, and I go, <laughs> pen and Teller. And Al Lewis disgustedly waves his hand and goes, P.J. You, shit.
3: <laughs>
0: Which he tells in front of the man's wife.
3: <laughs> <Yes>! <laughs>
0: <laughs> Emily, I'm sorry. We haven't even met and I'm apologizing. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: you want to plug the documentary, too? People yes. should
2: see it. Yes. Um, yeah. The documentary is uh, on Netflix. Yes, which Gilbert is not sure if he has. Right. And yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, by Martin Scorsese. And it's called Rolling Thunder Review. A Bob Dylan, a Bob story. Dylan story. And after you watch the documentary... You could go to www.ratso.org and buy the book that describes <laughs> That's a, the documentary. And the book
0: is great. The book is Thanks. a great read. Thanks, Ratso.
3: Thanks. Oh, the lady will stun you when you meet face to face Her beauty unbounded by time or by place And she'll dance around your shyness Poke fun at your gloom, but you can't help but smile as she gooses the groom.
4: Oh, she lives in the ruins of a honeymoon sweet, the optimal place for the star-crossed to meet. The Oracle says The maiden is chaste Now she's throwing those pennies Right back in your face And she'll shine on you tonight Let her shine on you Our lady, our lady of life She
3: will ask to be rescued From the first rays of dawn Then she'll throw down a rope That is studded with thorns And at last, when you climb it When your palms are all torn She'll be taking the sun in From a chair on the lawn And she'll shine on you tonight Let her shine on you tonight like
4: Many questions Or you'll end up like me Marooned on an island Circumscribed by her sea And I guess that I'm stuck here To no one's surprise I surrendered my freedom When I look through her eyes And she'll she'll shine shine on you tonight, tonight. let her shine on you tonight. tonight, oh lady, dear lady, oh lady,
1: godfrey's amazing colossal podcast is produced by dara godfrey and frank Padre, with audio production by frank Verderosa. web and social media is handled by mike mcpadden greg Pear, and john bradley seals special audio contributions by john beach special thanks to john fodiatis john murray and paul rayburn